HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome PBS Distribution's Andrea Downing. In this episode, we'll talk to Andrea about Julia on streaming, how public television is tackling digital media. And we'll hear Andrea's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was a pioneer in many ways, but none more so than on television, specifically public television. As the HBO series Julia portrays, Julia's opportunity to become a television cooking teacher was at WGBH in Boston, which became one of America's leading public broadcasting stations, one which pioneered creating original shows reaching a national audience beyond its local market. At the time that Julia starred in The French Chef, it was revolutionary. Not just because a cooking show had never before reached a national audience, but because in the 1960s, television was still a relatively new medium. And public television was even more in its infancy, with local stations only starting television broadcasts less than 10 years prior. In many ways, Julia and American public television came of age together. For context, the French chef's debut predates the founding of PBS, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and even Sesame Street by six years. 
Julia's devotion to being a teacher aligned perfectly with public television's mission to educate as well as entertain. For this reason, Julia remained committed to supporting public television throughout her career. We've now come to a full circle evolution of this connection as the digital age and streaming wars have created a renewed environment to return Julia to our airways. Someone at the forefront of Julia's revival on streaming is Andrea Downing. Andrea is the president of PBS Distribution, a joint venture between GBH and PBS, focused on expanding the global reach of public media content across digital platforms. At PBSD, Andrea is responsible for strategy, finance, and operations, overseeing a diversified portfolio of businesses, including six and counting, subscription video on demand channels, including PBS Living and PBS Documentaries, which air several Julia shows. She's been instrumental in PBSD's growth from its original home entertainment focus, remember DVDs, to today's multi-platform world. A more than 20-year PBS veteran, Andrea started as its VP for Home Entertainment and Partnerships soon after PBS was created. Prior to that, she rose through the consumer product ranks at Discovery Communications. She serves on the Digital Entertainment Group's Canon Club Advisory Board, which mentors women in entertainment and technology careers. She joins us today to tell us more about Julia's revival in streaming and how PBS is transforming public television programming in the digital age. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thank you, Todd. Excited to be here today and have an opportunity to talk about not only PBS distribution, but Julia and the profound legacy that she's left and um, how it's being viewed today by consumers. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about all of those things. And I thought before we just dive right into Julia on streaming, I thought it would be helpful for you to just have a chance to tell us more about what PBS does, because I think while PBS is a whole household name, the, the distinction is not well known. And, and maybe even talk about how its role has evolved now that we're you know deep into the streaming wars. Yes. Thank you, Todd. Uh, so, So PBS distribution is the for-profit arm for public media. And we are a leading distributor of that public media content around the world, not just in the U.S., um, which to bring viewers content they know and they love, the high-quality period dramas, award-winning documentaries, trusted kids shows, and engaging lifestyle series. These audiences have access to our content through multiple platforms and formats, including digital subscription channels, digital download, streaming services. As you mentioned earlier, Todd, DVDs, believe it or not, we are still in the DVD business. (laughs) (laughs) In theatrical runs on a limited basis and international broadcasts. I think... um, as I reflect that in terms of what really sets us apart, um, number one is the content. The, the content, it's absolutely fabulous to work for an organization like PBS where you have such a, a triple bottom line. The content is, is, is absolutely fantastic. Um, but our extensive home entertainment distribution experience, the broad distribution portfolio and capabilities, and our customized approach to help first-time producers industry veterans navigate this ever-evolving media landscape and really maximize, maximize their film's potential. As you mentioned, we, um, we're continuing to expand our digital footprint 
Um, we're in the advertising video on demand or AVOD space and the free ad-supported television or fast spaces to continue to bring public media content to consumers wherever they are. We also, um, in that AVOD space and fast space, we do have numerous fast channels um, in the US and in the UK. And in fact, we just launched one in Canada, um, including fan favorite, uh, Julia Child, <laughs> Antiques Road, <laughs> right? um, Antiques Road Trip and Antiques Road Show. And it's great, um, consumers can watch 24 seven. Well, so you brought Antiques Roadshow that started in the UK, had an American version, and then you brought the American version back to its original homeland? So, right, it started in the UK, and uh, we brought a format version of it to the US. Um, Antiques Roadshow, the UK version, has actually been on the Fast Channels for a number of years through the BBC. Mm -hmm. um, and we just this year launched um, the US version of Antiques Roadshow on Fast. Nice. And yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit more about because you're kind of going like two directions simultaneously, which is your or maybe even more. You're leveraging the catalog. You're distributing new PBS shows to other markets. And are you also importing content that you find like a, like an acquisitions company as well? Yeah, we, we do a little bit of all of that. Um, so one, we have a, a great depth of catalog shows. Um, we also um, have a, a pipeline of current and new shows that are coming and continue to come. And as we look at these new platforms, we are um, acquiring, in some cases, brand new series. In the case of um, what I just mentioned, Antiques Road Trip, that was a series that we acquired out of the UK, specifically for Fast. And as a result, we are also able to add all of that great content. I think 20 seasons of Antiques Road Trip, which is still an ongoing series in the UK, to PBS in their free spaces too, including in past their, their product called Passport, which is available to members. Yeah, and I thought actually the other thing that I thought you were better uh, able to explain than me is PBSD also had, a, a, if I'm remembering correctly, a, a significant role in Downton Abbey coming to the US. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we what we do is we partner with the, the Masterpiece team um, who make all of the editorial decisions, um, as well as the PBS team um, who, um, outside of those that strand, makes the editorial decisions. But we help find identify programs to fill the pipeline so that they can make those decisions and, more importantly, help fund that content up front. And that, that was the case. So, so Downton Abbey started in the U.S. as a masterpiece theater, like presents thing for public television broadcast. That, that that's right. It was a it was a it was a PBS masterpiece show. Um, and once you know, there were six seasons of it. It was incredible. It was incredibly successful. And um, in addition to you know acquiring it for broadcast, um, our goal is always to acquire a broad set of rights, including all of the home entertainment rights. And um, by doing that, we were able to license um, Downton Abbey. Uh, we licensed it out to um, Prime Video. Um, and we took advantage of, of it across all channels, which really helped enable the funding of all the future seasons. Yeah, and I thought that is something I thought you could speak to, too, that many people may not realize or they're most familiar with the free public television broadcast, but that a lot of um, content um, for example, ad that GBH may make or another station may produce actually for years had pretty successful lives as home entertainment product, whether VHS or DVDs or that 
there was a market for people to, to buy it and own it, no? Uh, absolutely. Um, we try to extend um, the life of the program. Um, you know, in the past, if it was only on broadcast, it comes and goes. In this digital space, um, there's now a, a, a place for all of that content, um, both in the fee and in the free products and platforms. So we could put it up on pbs.org and we have a significant reach, but we also can put it on DVD. We can put it, um, download, uh, you know, to download to own an episode in our subscription-based channels and services. Um, we can sell it internationally to other programmers. And that really does help. Um, there's typically, uh, for, the, for the audience, if you don't know, public television doesn't fully fund those shows. And so there's typically a producer deficit. And in those cases, um, the producers are relying on our home entertainment distribu distribution to help fund that series. And, and what is the sort of landscape right now for PBS programming internationally? Is, is that is something that, because I, I also think maybe something Americans wouldn't realize that a lot of it, it was, maybe a lot might be the wrong word. Certain shows travel and go abroad and are watched and I assume dubbed or subtitled in, in other markets around the world. Yes, that's correct, Todd. Um, what um, we do have a smaller catalog of content um, that we sell globally, um, but in particular things like Nova, um, our our longstanding science series, Frontline, our current affairs investigative current affairs series, um, Ken Burns, um, our many of our kids series um, really do sell well. And in the past, we've always um, and we continue to sell to broadcasters around the world in 160 countries. And um, as digital has grown um, over overseas, just like it has here in the U.S., how we sell and who we sell to continues to change. Um, as I mentioned, we launched a fast channel um, in the U.K. Um, we actually have um, uh, for Arthur. Uh, we have a commercial um, linear network called PBS America in the UK that's ad supported. And as a result, we've also launched um, a fast channel with Samsung for PBS America. Uh, so the business continues to change um, as much for us um, in the international space as it does here in the, in the domestic market. And in aggregate, does, would you say that reflects growth of what PBSD is doing, or it's just a realignment of sort of you're doing the same volume, but it's 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 reaching consumers in different touch points. It's it's a little bit of both. It's it's growth. Um, we're expanding the set of rights that we're um, extending to the programmers and broadcasters around the world. Um, in those cases, they're translating the programs themselves. Uh, when we go into the digital space and we're doing a digital only deal, um, those those sometimes those uh, d translation deals can be a little trickier. Um, and if you're doing regional deals versus global, it does take a lot of those deals to add up. Um, but we're um, extremely bullish about our opportunities in that international space. Interesting. But that's different than, right, because I think Sesame as a Sesame Street as a format exists in other parts of the world as a, a local production, which is different than you guys distributing the American version of Sesame Street. Correct. And in fact, we don't represent Sesame. They do that themselves um, in both cases. Because they're their own little yeah. little power powerhouse juggernaut for, for kids. <laughs> it's like yes, funny to are. think of the, the little kids programming is actually like kind of a big gorilla that can can uh, muscle its way around the world. Um, so I really wanted to talk to, to you about just your kind of take, because I know you've been working in this space, both 
from the beginning and then in its prior iterations about the streaming landscape right now, which, while I think is kind of a little bit of a businessy conversation, I think it's such a big deal that many people think about it or hear about it, or maybe consumers approach it and our listeners from a more personal way, which is like, how many subscriptions do I have to have? But I was curious from your position, really on the front lines of dealing with taking advantage of the expansion, as well as figuring out where's best to be and where to place your beds. Do you think, are we getting closer to, oh, everything's going to start consolidating and it'll be more like cable? Or do you still think we're like a decade out from the streaming wars continuing to play out or even streamers and fast channels growing and expanding? You know, Todd, I, I really wish that my uh, magic eight ball would give me all these answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to know what you think right now, not not like, like your opinion. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, I think, you know, like the, the streaming and media landscape is definitely not boring. And you combine that with the complexities of public media. And I, I think it's just it's filled with opportunity. Um, it's 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 a really interesting moment. Um the streaming landscape, the platforms, the business models, the content strategies are constantly evolving and are also converging right now. Um, so there's, and there's so much choice for consumers and it can be really very confusing to know where to find their shows and, and to decide what to watch. I, I read something the other day that um, sometimes they, people spend as much as 30 minutes trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. Crazy. Um but then we also have this new fast in this in the AVOD space. Right now, I think it's over 15 platforms. And so it's if you ask me if I think there's going to be consolidation, yes. I think it, you know, 15 is a lot. And you know, the, the top four um I think have about 50% of the market. Um, we've also seen the traditional SPOD players add on an advertising tier to their offers. We saw that with Netflix, right, was as they were struggling with their growth. Mm. Um, and they're, and everybody's really competing for both consumers' time and wallet. And when I think about their time and their wallet, it's not just the video components, but it's also it's audio, it's magazines, it's news, it's all of those things. And I think as consumers are getting smarter about their subscriptions. Um, they're canceling more often and adding on new ones, but also really supplementing it with their fast and AVOD opportunities where they don't necessarily have to pay. Um, also, we're starting to see SPOD services. They're beginning to bundle with other services. Uh, strangely, and, but smartly, I saw that uh, Verizon announced that they're offering a bundle of Netflix and Paramount Plus and Showtime to their customers. Mm-hmm. Prime Video Channels is also beginning to bundle. Um, in fact, we have a bundle coming up this fall for PBS Masterpiece and PBS Kids. Um, but overall, yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we will see consolidation. Growth has just gotten really hard. Content is more expensive. Companies are getting pressure to increase their profitability. Um, when before the the streets right for, um, for the for profits was really focused on subscriber growth, now they want profitability. Um, for us, for PBS distribution, we've really been successful in continuing to evolve our business model. Um, and you know, I think for everybody that has a long term strategy in this space, um, the long term strategy is mostly be nimble 
<laughs> because it is constantly changing. And I think the only the only thing that I know for certain is that every morning when I wake up, it's going to be different. <laughs> Something will be different. And then every, 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 every time I think we have a conversation between our relationship with PBS and the foundation, it's like, wait, why is this structure different? But it literally just changed. Like it's, it, it's so fast moving. And I'm also struck by, and I wanted to hear what you have to think, you know, facing now SAG joining the writers on strike, which is very much about everything you just talked about, which is how fast moving and how different streaming has made the business models behind the entertainment industry. That I feel like one of these things that is part of this existential angst that both sides are going through is that Netflix as the the sort of big first mover in streaming was really built on an old tech and dot-com business model, which for years they were rewarded for. But ultimately, when you take a step back, is hugely inconsistent with content production. Because a lot of, you know, the dot-com businesses were all about efficiencies and they weren't heavy on product or production costs other than maybe engineering. And here we're talking about applying a dot-com model model to something where digital has helped reduce distribution costs, but it's not really done anything to help. It doesn't reduce production costs. And it do, do you do you have that same kind of perspective that that is one of the huge realignments that where streaming started as a business model was never really tenable for, for entertainment and content production as a business model? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question and, and perspective, Todd. And I think, um, you, you know, certainly the, the distribution has changed and as has the content strategies. And I think everybody was building, 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 and at this, and, and content has certainly not gotten cheaper. Um, and, and at this point, everybody is thinking very critically about how to optimize their content investments. And I think also thinking very differently at a regional level um, in terms of local contents. Um, and, and so I, I, think, I think you're right. Um, it's just a very different. Uh, I was um, reading, um, you know, everybody has kind of been comparing this to cable 2.0. And, you know, really in truth, and there's a couple of really good articles on it, it's not anything like that at all. And, you know, cable was predicated on controlled distribution, uh, where you had one or two choices in a market, and there was very little content differentiation. In fact, now, distribution is much more ubiquitous, and content is differentiated across services. And that's where all this, this surge in original programming has come, so that they can differentiate. And you're even starting to see that with the FAST partners now, which really relied on catalog content. Uh, so, um, you know, I think very different models um, that we're living through and, and that not, not to be compared with cable. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I mean, the majority of cable programming, other than cheap reality stuff, which wasn't at the beginning, was just the same content distributed in different ways. And they took advantage of the existing syndication. And there was just more channels for syndication. So more product could come. And then the exceptions were HBO and Showtime, mm -hmm. which started, which didn't, which were originally people may have forgotten, but HBO did not start as an original content creator. It was a, <laughs> a, a new distribution outlet for repurposing movies after theatrical. That was, you know, the lane of both of them originally. It was like, wow, you can watch 
theatrical movies at home after you missed them in the theater. And it was only later that they evolved their subscription model. But it was a different model, and it was almost an exclusive model. They didn't have 40 competitors with the same model. That's right. So on that note, can I just put you on the spot? What is the thought? We had a couple conversations a while back, but not since about is there a move for PBS distribution itself to get into the content development space or has all particularly what's going on now reaffirmed that it's just safer to play in the distribution space? So I would, I would, I would say that we're doing that today. We are in the development business, um, but in partnership with PBS and GBH, um, they're very much, you know, um, making all of the editorial decisions. Um, but we do help fuel the, develop the pipeline of content in particular for drama and, um, and, and, and are doing some development deals. I think that coming in at that stage is gives us a really great opportunity to, um, you know, set the creative direction as well as the price and all of the partners, um, rather than coming in and trying to buy things that are already off the shelf. So in essence, you're, they're coming to you with editorial ideas and you're helping make them financially viable by figuring out distribution strategies for them and being a partner in that way. Yes. And as part of that is maybe not figuring out their distribution strategies, but taking the distribution rights for our market um, so that we can help uh, fund and get those shows made. Well, that's exciting. I fear we may have drifted way off into, <laughs> into inside baseball. For, so for anyone who's close to development, but for our average listeners, we'll, we'll, we'll very shortly, we'll take a break and we'll move right back to talking about Julia on streaming and that revival with Andrea Downing from PBSD. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Andrea Downing, president of PBS Distribution, about Julia Admits the Streaming Wars. So we'll switch gears and we'll, we'll, we'll get out of the, the, the industry weeds and get into um, Julia on TV and on streaming. And I feel like, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like Julia is suddenly, and her, particularly her shows, are now more easily available to watch possibly than ever before. And so I was hoping you could just run us through like where and how you can watch them and which shows are available. 
Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, Todd. Julia is, um, I I think, certainly having a renaissance of sorts um, combined with the distribution work that the expanded distribution work that we're doing, um, the work that you and the foundation have done um, from the movie to the documentaries to the cooking shows and the traveling exhibit. There are so much um, great content right now for uh, related to Julia. Um, But in in relation to us in particular, um, her shows... um, are really on many different streaming and social media platforms. And that expansion has happened in the last two years, probably. Viewers can find Julia on our PBS Living subscription video on demand channel on both Prime Video channels and Apple for $2.99 a month. And on our PBS Documentaries channel for $3.99 a month. Uh, On Fast with partners Pluto, Tubi, Freebie, and Plex. And Avod with Pluto, Tubi, Freebie, Plex, Roku, Zumo, and Vudu. Um, and just as a reminder to the audience, Fast is um, free ad-supported television. Uh, we also have a Julia Child YouTube channel. And on the Julia Child Facebook page, we have clips of the French chef. And when you're talking about these, uh, AVOD means it, or is the other term for the ad-supported video on demand. And mm-hmm. when you're talking TV, you mean digitally delivered television. What Which shows are um, on there? How many of Julia's past shows uh, are available? So um, we are programming across um, The French Chef, Baking with Julia, In Julia's Kitchen with Master Chefs, and Julia Child Cooking with Master Chefs. We also did a, few, a show a few years ago, Todd, you probably remember it, um, called Dishing with Julia yeah. that started out as a marketing stunt and it ended up becoming a full-length show for PBS Pledge. Um, and that, I thought that was really, it was, a, it was a fantastic idea. I think it turned out really where, well where today's chefs are sharing insightful, funny, personal comments and kind of un, an unabashed appreciation um, of the first lady of cooking. Yeah, no, it's got some great um, special guests from kind of throughout the Juliaverse, both people who have had public television shows and currently do. And I think Jacques Pepin is on there and Eric Repair and Carla Hall. Now, where where does that air? Does that only air within um, like PBS subscriber universe and Passport? Or can you find it on some of these streaming services? Um, I, th- I think it's it's on um, the subscription-based channels as well as um, on Passport and PBS, um, but I'm not sure it's on the streaming channels, uh, the fast channels. I'd have to double check. Yeah, and it's called Dishing with Julia, right? Correct, yes. Because there's the, uh, the, the companion podcast to the HBO series has a very similar name, too. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, I highly... Uh, PBS was very collaborative with us when they made it, and it, it, it's really enjoyable because it's a real merger. It's kind of an added layer of thoughts and ideas. And, you know, if you're someone who enjoys listening to chefs and food personalities talk about what they do and kibitz and then talk about joy, it, it, it turned out really beautifully. And, and I think holds up to continued watching. I agree. So what so far, you know, it's interesting thinking back to those the, those very early days at GBH when 27 people wrote in and say, we'd love to see more of that woman. <laughs> what kind of public response um, has been kind of flowing into to PBSD in terms of Julia's return? Or is it kind of, is there a divide where you, you, you're still waiting to hear what people think? Well, people love Julia. 
And um, while consumer viewing habits certainly have changed um, since Julia's first shows aired and they continue to change, um, they're finding her, they're loving her, they're watching her in black and white. And um, our strategy has really, um, we started off, I think, you know, slowly by adding her programs to our PBS Living service. Um, And then we expanded to PBS Documentaries channel. Uh, And then really with the growth of FAST, which has been described as the most I think this is absolutely true too, that the most equitable form of media we've seen in a generation because it's completely free with broadband. Um, but, and we, so we really turned our attention to that space and both, both Pluto and Tubi are actually now in the top 10 of streamers. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I was talking to someone the other day who, to your point about that Netflix has become overwhelming to to people. And actually, I think now that Max has been integrated with Discovery, which seemed like such a good good idea, mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of efficiency and cost effectiveness. But now I'm, it's like almost as overwhelming as Netflix. You're like, I don't know where to start. And I've heard people, this is anecdotal, say to me, oh, yeah, I like the Fast Channel because I just like, oh, I like that show. I know it. I'll just watch that. It simplifies things for me. And they're watching something from the 80s. Exactly. Um, it really did give an, op- an opportunity for catalog content or retro content to have a space. And um, I, I, I've seen the same thing, Todd, which is if you look at Netflix, I think on both ends of the week and across the weekends is when they have their highest um, people number of people watching. But when you look at something like Pluto, um, their highest viewing rates, at least the last time I saw it, were during the middle of the week. And it's a much more lean back experience. So it's something you can just turn on, you know you like it, and it just plays. And you can have it on while you're watching dinner or you're watching your kids or, you know, it's just a much different kind of experience. And it's very much um, people talk about what your your mood. Are you in the mood for food or horror or you just turn it on? So um, our approach, you know, beyond fast was really to test the content on AVOD to see if we had an audience we partnered with Pluto and Tubi and Roku, and that content performed well. There was great interest. Um, so after we started with Avod, is really when we started with Fast. And how did how was that like? How did you figure that out in terms of was it these um, other just the, the sorry? It gets very confusing. The Fast channel is actually the channel itself. On do you call them plat? What is Pl- by definition? What is Pluto or Tubi or Freebie? They are. Yeah, so Pluto is a fast channel, a uh, fast platform that also does AVOD, um, but fast is their um, primary business model. Tubi, on the other hand, started out as an AVOD platform and added fast to complement AVOD. So, um, so those, again, business models were different, then they converge, and, um, and yet they're different. And so how do they, how does a Pluto or a Tubi tell you, or how do you read, oh, putting this content on their service is, is working? Are they feeding you numbers or, or how do you, you know, I'm just going back to where you said, oh, we tried this out and we learned that there was an audience for it. Yes. So we do get reporting um, and, you know, it varies by partner and, you know, they, it's fairly limited data. The customer is theirs, not ours. Um, But we get, um, and correct me if I I could be wrong, but we get some level of impressions or views. Um, And then for us, we also get, you know, revenue. 
So um, based on the ad sales and how our ad sales, you know, how much is the CPM and are we getting a 95% sell rate? Uh, those kinds of things um, definitely, you know, from our perspective adds up in how we look at this. And I guess you also know if they say, hey, what else do you got? That's like, you, you, 100%. You, right, right. Some of it is just like, are they asking for more? Because, right, they know more data than they're giving out, which is also part of the issue with the strikes with the, the biggest streamers. So mm-hmm. you, you, one metric is when they come back to you and say, do you have anything else? Because we'd like to try it. 100%. And like every time we have ideas or concepts, we go and we pitch the ideas because um, they know what they want and what they don't want because they have all of that data that we don't have. And I will say that because it's such a new space, um, pr- their content strategies are constantly changing. Um, and so it's r- super important that we partner with them, that we have, you know, you're talking to them constantly and um, figuring out how to um, ensure their platform and our content is both, both successful. Yeah, it's like one of these, you know, a hundred variable things, which is they're, they're learning as the content on different platforms evolves, that changes consumer behavior, but then also the competitive landscape, who's joining or what services are being introduced, or even like a Netflix price hike, that also changes consumer behavior. So then, and that's both the the chaos and also, you know, there's much more real time data in the digital age than there was when you were just broadcasting on with your FCC license. Right. We're relying on Nielsen. Yeah. <laughs> Although now it's a race to see if we're going to be back to relying on Nielsen or mm-hmm. or some new player who, you know, that that's the the argument now with the, the strike situation, too, which is our streaming platform is going to release more information because ultimately, if they're not, then a third party is going to do it. Because I, I, I think one of the clear things that anyone was listening to Fran Drescher um, take on the big studios was about you, you're either going to tell us the information or we're going to get it from someone else. But we're, we're, we're done being in the dark. That's right. So um, I, I, I wanted to get you, you touched on this before. And, you know, obviously, the foundation, we think about this a lot of like, however green is Julia's content, and you know, how much capacity is there. And I was just curious, and you mentioned how you're you're working on fast channels, you guys support passport, uh, which which is for PBS subscribers, and um, old fashioned uh, members, PBS, PBS members, that's right. Yeah, members, sorry. And, um, and then also we've got the YouTube channel, which we're being frank with everyone. If you want to watch it for free on your computer or if you have YouTube, but even on your TV, you can watch it um, on uh, the YouTube channel that PBSD established for Julia programs. It's 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 slightly different curation, but there's lots of shows there. Mm-hmm. And are, are we at, are we approaching maximum Julia? And we've got like sort of three years to play this out, and then it'll be something else. You know, I think. Um, one, you can never have too much Julia. <laughs> and <laughs> um, from my perspective, we're just, we're really meeting viewers where they are. And so, you know, maybe they happen to be on YouTube and they come across it or they happen to be on Facebook or they love PBS. And so they've subscribed to our PBS documentaries channel and that's what their go-to. That's where they go to find content or they're a member of their local station and they love to use Passport. Um, so I, I really just think that, you know, having kind of taking almost a ubiquitous approach allows us to reach the most people um, and um, 
it, otherwise they might not even know it's available. Yeah. So you're sort of, sort of saying that there, we're just hitting the different, like there's people who like to watch fast channels. There are people who mm-hmm. don't even watch TV at all and just do YouTube. And then there are people who are dedicated PBS viewers who only look at that and just making sure that we're available to all those different segments. Yes, that's right. And and have you found that actually, I think we've talked about before that like the viewing habits of who watches on YouTube versus a fast channel are pretty kind of shockingly different. Fascinating. They're fascinating. Um, we are seeing success with Julia on YouTube and there's definitely a large audience there. It skews slightly more male and viewership is spread pretty evenly across all age groups above 25. And wasn't there also like a day part thing? Like the YouTube channel I thought was getting more like daytime, like people were like snacking on it, it seemed like, versus a fast yes. channel. Is that right? Yeah, they were. Yeah. I just, I would love to be able to like talk to Julia about this. She would find, I think, it find it so <laughs> fascinating to be like, wait, what? They're watching when? I wonder why that is. It's, it's, I don't know. I think it's really fascinating. It's also exciting. And I think at the foundation, we're super pleased that. Julia can be reintroduced to people and and to new generations of her. And it is also astounding to think about content that was produced at the early days of public television, particularly the French chef in black and white can still stand up in today's like whiz bang special effects landscape. Yeah, it really is amazing. And I think a testament to how absolutely incredible she is. All right. After the break, on that note, we're going to come back and we'll hear Andrea's Julia moment. I'm interested to hear what she's chosen. As uh, Andrea referred to, the Julia Child A Recipe for Life interactive exhibition continues at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in Dearborn, Michigan. It runs all summer until just after Labor Day. You can join Julia and Paul's meal at La Corone or step into Julia's shoes behind the camera on the set of The French Chef. For tickets and more information, visit thehenryford.org and click on Current Events. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. All right, Andrea, what's your Julia moment? Thanks, Todd. And I've been waiting to share this. And I have to say that um, your intro was a, a, was also my favorite Julia moment, which <laughs> has to be the start of her relationship with public television. Um, and it has been, as a result of that, um, I've had such an absolutely fantastic opportunity to be um, part of Julia's life um, and her programming and helping to craft her distribution strategy. Um, Just a little bit of background and hopefully not too repetitive, Todd, but in 1961, Julia first appeared at NET, which is now GBH in Boston. Uh, It was a book review show where she demonstrated how to make that omelet. Um, which then led to her television cooking show, The French Chef, in 1962. As you said, it ran for 10 years. It won Peabody and Emmy Awards and uh, was absolutely um, such um, an important um, role and personality in the very, very beginnings of public television. 
Um, also, fun fact, um, The French Chef was the first television program to be captioned for the deaf. Um, and uh, uh, GBH in particular has always played um, a very leading role in uh, closed captioning. And and is in in some ways are you saying your Julia moment is you feel like you're you're in this position of like just continuing and extending that that beginning and that legacy as I kind of said like full circle. That's exactly right. It's a first full circle moment um, where we just really um, for me having an opportunity to really take those shows and her legacy and extend it and offer up um, and introduce new viewers to to Julia's. It's, it's, a, it's a very rewarding experience. Well, and we appreciate it. And we really enjoy working with you in PBSD. And we thank you very much for, for coming on and, and, and sharing about it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have a conversation with you, Todd. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And thanks everyone for listening. You can check out at Julia Child on PBS on YouTube to watch many classic Julia episodes for free. There are video clips from the French chef. They continue to arrive weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook and it's at PBS distribution on Facebook. And you can please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. If you aren't already, I'm at T Shulkin on Instagram. And as Andrea talked about, you can find Julia Child channels streaming The French Chef and several other Julia shows for free on Pluto TV, Plex, Freebie, and now Tubi as well. And you can also find them on the subscription channels, PBS Living and PBS Documentary on Amazon Prime. And if you subscribe there, then you avoid uh, the ads, which you would see when you watch them for free on the Fast channels, which is how they fund them. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Valdhorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.